The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 140, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Selah. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Uh, you know, there are lots of psalms which are called psalms of, anybody know what I'm thinking of? David. Well, David wrote them, but there's a certain type of psalm. No, not the ascents. That's, that, those are the ones that come right after the 119th psalm. There's 14 of them, I believe. There's a certain type of psalm where the Lord or the psalmist asks the Lord to vindicate the psalmist, to destroy the enemies of the Lord. Anybody know what the word is? Imprecatory psalms. That's right. Psalms of imprecation. This one that we just heard and the one that um, Jim read earlier, Psalms of Imprecation. It's asking the Lord to not look favorably on the enemies of the Lord and of the enemies of the Lord's people. And I have no problem praying imprecatory psalms, especially in today's world. We'll go back to the one that Jim read earlier and what it said, the very last words, which is what I was going to read during the update and I just forgot. Here's the last words of it from verse 19 on. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. We see that all over the world today. Why would we be praising these people? Right? He goes on. Do not I hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And then he asks, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. He's asking the Lord to not let me be a wicked person too. I want to be right with you and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And there's a time to pray for the wicked as well. Lord, please turn their hearts. But if you don't, this is the only alternative left is to pray out psalms of imprecation. So there you go. Don't feel bad about that. This is the Lord's word and he's put it in here for us to learn from. So here we go. We're going to go into Numbers 21, verses 21 through 35. We're going to finish the chapter today. 
This is entitled, Two Foes to be Destroyed. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabok, as far as the people of Ammon. For the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all of its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! You have perished, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Debon. Then we laid waste as far as Nophah, which reaches to Medibah. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Israel sent to spy out Jazer. And they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. And they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. On the day that I typed this sermon, I got to verse 27 and needed an analogy concerning the type of literature that is being presented. The Marine Corps hymn came to mind, and so I did a search to pull it up. Ironically, an article concerning the hymn was published that same morning. The Commandant of the Marines directed that instead of coming to attention and remaining silent when the hymn is played, all Marines are now to sing it out loud. Due to the irony of these two things coming about on the same day, I decided that we should hear the hymn read so that we can, like Israel did, remember the history of our Marine warriors. Here's what it says. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we fight our country's battles on the lands and on the sea. First to fight for right and freedom and to keep our honor clean, we are proud to claim the title of United States Marine. Our flags unfurled to every breeze from dawn to setting sun. We have fought in every clime and place where we could take a gun. In the snow of far off northern lands and in sunny tropic scenes, you will find us always on the job, the United States Marines. Here's health to you and to our Corps, which we are proud to serve. In many a strife, we've fought for life and never lost our nerve. If the Army and the Navy ever look on heaven's scenes, they will find the streets are guarded by United States <laughs> Marines. From the halls of Montezuma 
to the shores of Tripoli, we fight our country's battles on lands and on the sea. First to fight for right and freedom and to keep our honor clean, we are proud to claim the title United States Marine. Our text verse comes from Revelation chapter 5. It's verses 11 and 12. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Whether singing a song about the deeds of the heroes of a nation or of the greatness of God, we remember these things because they stir our souls and remind us of past deeds which carry future significance. Someday the redeemed of the Lord will shout out together the words of Revelation 5 verse 12, all hailing the great deed which was done and which will have not just future but eternal significance. But there is nothing wrong with calling out those words today. The words of our text verse were put to music by George Friedrich Handel in his most esteemed work known as Messiah. In fact, it is the 53rd and last portion of the work. It encompasses scene four, and it is entitled, Worthy is the Lamb. So in preparation for the marvelous day when the saints of God together sing out to the Lamb, Maybe you will, from time to time, take advantage of listening to the words of Handel's Messiah. And certainly, because I know you read your Bible daily, you will come to Revelation 5 at least a couple times each year. When you get there, you can ponder on the great things that Christ has done for his people. Someday, Israel will be on that same page with us. That was seen last week, but it continues to be seen this week. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today and a couple of sub-thoughts. Our first is Sihon, king of the Amorites, is verses 21 through 28. Verse 21, then Israel sent messengers, Vayislach Yisrael Malachim, and sent Israel messengers. The word messengers is Malach a word often translated as angel. In the Hebrew, as in the Greek, the idea of an angel is a divine messenger. The word itself is simply one that signifies being dispatched as a messenger. Verse 21 continues to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying. Sihon, or Sihon, is introduced here. The name will be referred to many times in the Old Testament, even as late as the time of Jeremiah. His name will be directly associated with the land that he rules. The name comes from a root which signifies to sweep away or to strike down. Thus, his name may signify anything from tempestuous to warrior. He is defined further as Melech HaEmori, or King of the Amorites. We saw in last week's verses that Amorite comes from the word Amar, which means to utter or to say. Therefore, the name signifies being spoken of and thus renowned. Israel is sending messengers to this king with a petition which is not at all unreasonable. During an acrostic search of chapter 21, which we saw at the beginning of this chapter, he ran the whole chapter and he found something interesting. Our friend Sergio found that in the words, Then Israel sent messengers to King Sihon. There is a forward-running acrostic which says, Ve'yemasam which means, and rejected them. This is the forward acrostic. The same words 
also form a backward running acrostic which says chen la melech, or favor to the king. Together they show what happens in the passage. Israel extends favor to the king, and the king rejects their request. It's rather astonishing. This is especially so because the length of the first acrostic is rather long, which is quite unusual. Verse 22, let me pass through your land. The first sentence here is one of appeal. There is no presumption in it, and there is no hint of threat. It is simply a request. But more, verse 22 going on, we will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. There is a promise of respect for the property of the Amorites, signifying that they have the right to their own land, and that right will not be violated in any way. Instead, verse 22 going on, we will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Derek HaMelech. We saw this before. We're seeing it again in this passage. Way of the king. It signifies a public road paid for at the cost of the king's treasury. It would be kept in proper order at all times for the king and his army to set out in times of either offensive or defensive battles. It would pass through the heart of the land, meaning that Israel would be completely under the eye of the Amorites and at their mercy. They would, in essence, be leaving themselves open to the forces of Sihon. The entire appeal is similar to that found in Numbers 20 when speaking to the king of Edom. Here's what it said then. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway, and we will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Verse 23, but Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. It is the same reaction as that of the king of Edom. There it said, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come against you with the sword. After a second appeal, it then said that Edom came out against them. Here, no second appeal is recorded. Rather, it simply says, verse 23 going on, so Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel. Here it is in the wilderness. What is unrecorded in this account of Numbers, but what is stated in Deuteronomy 2, is that the Lord already knew what the outcome of sending the messengers would be. There we read this, Rise, take your journey, and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. It is only after stating this that Moses then sent the messengers. The reason for telling him that they would be given to Israel in battle is twofold. First, the Amorites were set for destruction by the Lord because they were ripe for judgment. That was seen all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, meaning Abraham's descendants, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Abraham was told that the reason for his not receiving the land during his years was because the Amorites had not yet reached the full measure of their iniquity. That time has now come. Secondly, the verse in Deuteronomy explains that the nations would hear of what occurred and fear. Thus, this battle would give them the psychological advantage in future battles. However, despite being told in advance that they would engage in battle, Moses followed the proper protocols in order to demonstrate that Sihon 
was the aggressor, and that when the land was won in battle, it would rightly become the possession of Israel. If Israel had attacked without this diplomatic offer, then the validity of the land acquisition would be in question. Further, it said that Sihon went out against Israel in the wilderness. Thus, Israel has not even entered into Sihon's land. This was a war initiated by Sihon, and it was an attack outside of his jurisdiction. Therefore, Israel was wholly within their rights to assume the land as theirs. In Deuteronomy 2, it says this, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. It says that the Lord hardened Sihon's heart. The question is, just like we raised this question in the Exodus accounts with Pharaoh, was this an active or was it a passive hardening? The answer is that it was passive. The fact that Israel had retreated from Edom led Sihon to a false conclusion that they were weak, but the Lord would not allow them to go out against their own brother. You remember that? The same is true with Moab, as is recorded in Deuteronomy 2. But Sihon didn't realize that the Lord had forbidden Israel to battle them either, having given the land to the descendants of Lot. Therefore, Sihon's heart was passively hardened, making him think that Israel was a cowardly nation that could be easily plundered. Verse 23 continues. Why is that important? Before I go on, why is it important? Because, go ahead. Because that's just what's happening now. That's what's happening now. That's correct. But the most important point, forget right now, you're, you're correct. It is not his will. That's right. The Lord passively hardens people. He cannot be imputed wrongdoing when Pharaoh does wrong or when these people. That is the point that's being made. The Lord will passively harden people, but it is their choice to make these decisions, just as Pharaoh was. And that comes back to the doctrine of divine election. How do we get saved? All of this, you think these things are irrelevant little stories? The fact is that we have what's called free will. The Lord does not interfere in that. He will woo us, but we still have the choice to make it. Okay? The same is true with people having their hearts hardened against the Lord. The Lord does not actively harden people's hearts away from him. It's important to think on these things because we cannot impute wrongdoing to the Lord God. He is God we are his creatures. Verse 23 continues, and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. The name Yahatz or Jahaz comes from a root meaning to stamp. Thus it signifies trodden down. It appears that the name of the place is derived from what occurred during the battle. At this location, the Amorites were trodden down, and thus Israel gave the location its name as a memorial of the battle. Verse 24, then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword. The Hebrew is more descriptive, saying lepi harev, or with the mouth of the sword. The sword consumes the souls of men, devouring their existence. This sets up the next words. Verse 24 continues, and took possession of the land. The word translated as took possession speaks of inheritance. Through death, Sihon disinherited, and thus Israel is now the inheritor or possessor of the land that goes, verse 24, continues from the Arnon to the Jabok, as far as the people of Ammon. As seen last week, Arnon comes from the word Ranan, which signifies to give a jubilant, ringing cry, and thus rejoicing. Therefore, it is the roaring stream. The Yabok, or Jabok, has only been seen in Genesis 32, verse 22, where Jacob wrestled with the man in the night. 
at that time, it was noted that Jabuk means pouring out. Like the name Israel, it carries a double entendre. There is a pouring out of God's favor, his love, his grace, his mercy, and the like, even the Holy Spirit. But there is also a pouring out of God's wrath. We saw that back in Genesis. We're going to see the same thing right here. God is very consistent in using places, things, etc., to give us pictures of other things. Verse 24 continues, For the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. These words explain why the land acquisition ended at the Jabbok, not the reason why Israel didn't attack them. Because of the strong fortification of their border, Sihon's territory only extended that far. However, Israel was given the reason for not conquering them. That is stated in Deuteronomy 2. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Ammon comes from the word Am, or people. In this, the sense is that they are called a people, and thus inbred, having their source in the union of Lot and his younger daughter. Like Moab, his brother Ammon was not to be harassed. They were both sons of Lot through his two daughters. Both nations have individuals who entered into the line of the Messiah. The Lord's plans in such things always have the purpose and intent of leading to or revealing the coming Lord Jesus. Does everybody understand what I just said? Moab and Ammon come from Lot and his two daughters. Everybody, when they preach on that particular passage, always says this is to teach us a lesson about inbreeding, about incest within a family, and it has nothing to do with that. Go back and watch that sermon if you want to know why that story is included in the Bible. But in short, without all of the great details, because somebody from Moab enters into the line of the Messiah. Does anybody remember who that is? Ruth, thank you. And somebody from Ammon enters into the line of the Messiah. Does anybody remember who that is? Solomon married an Ammonitess, and he had a son, Rehavam or Rehoboam, and he became the king of Israel, and he is in the line of Messiah. And, of course, people say how bad it is. They're forbidden from doing that. And yet Rehoboam was born. He became the king of Israel and entered the line of Messiah. These stories are always given, always to point us to the Messiah. That is what we are here to discover. All right? For Sihon, however... Such was not to be the case. Verse 25, So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all of its villages. Israel took possession, and it is seen that certain tribes took favorably to the land, and they decided they wanted to stay there and make that their possession. That will be recorded later in the book of Numbers. But for now, the account says this as a fact in the victory of the battle. Heshvon, or Heshvon, comes from the word Heshav. It is a word which signifies to consider, calculate, or devise. Therefore, it signifies an explanation of things and thus intelligence. This mentions both Heshvon and all of its villages. The Hebrew reads all of its daughters. And so it means Heshvon is a mother city with small villages which are dependent on the greater city. It would be comparable to the cities of Venice, Osprey, Nokomis, and so on, found in the greater Sarasota area. Verse 26, For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, then had taken all of his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. This verse explains that the city of Heshbon once belonged to Moab, 
and that it was acquired during a battle with Moab, including all of the land up to the Arnon itself. Thus, it was not improper for Israel to take possession of the land. Everybody see what's going on? The land once belonged to Moab. Sihon won it in battle, and Israel just legally won it from Sihon. Therefore, Moab has no claim against this land. Everybody got that? Okay. The rule of war is that land lost in battle, which one has initiated, is no longer theirs. Instead, it transferred to Sihon, and from Sihon, it transferred to Israel. Moab requires no explanation or payment for this transfer. The land will become a point of contention at the time of the judges, and Jephthah will recount what occurred right here to defend Israel's rights to it. 1A, poem part one, the words of the Amorites, verse 27. Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, the word therefore is given to explain the previous verse. A proverbial saying has come about to reflect the Lord's victory and how it stood in relation to what has happened in the past. In this is a new verb, mashal. It signifies to represent or to be like. Thus, it is speaking in Proverbs and making a comparison of one thing to another. It is the basis for the noun mashal, meaning a proverb. The reason for this being spoken as a proverb instead of a song is because the destruction of Heshbon by Sihon is now likened to the destruction of Sihon by Israel. The words forthcoming were commonly spoken or sung just as we might even today sing the Marine Corps hymn. Verse 27 continues, Come to Heshbon, let it be rebuilt. Baul Heshbon tibane. Come to Heshbon, it shall be rebuilt. The idea here is that Heshbon was destroyed during the battle by Sihon, and it must be rebuilt. The words here are a taunt to Moab concerning their defeat and Sihon's great victory. In the rebuilding of Heshbon, it will be given a new title. Verse 27 continues, let the city of Sihon be repaired, and let be prepared the city of Sihon. The city of Heshbon would henceforward also be known as the city of Sihon. This is similar to Jerusalem being called the city of David. The conqueror receives the honor. In fact, this was so common that we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. That means they are doomed. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Verse 28, for fire went out from Heshbon. Ki esh yaseah me Heshbon. For fire went out from Heshbon. This is speaking of the fire of war, which proceeded from Heshbon after Sihon had made it his own new capital city. From that staging point, war, symbolized by fire, went out further. Verse 28 continues, a flame from the city of Sihon. Lehava mikirat Sihon, a flame from the city of Sihon. Another new word is seen here, kiriah, or city. That comes from a word signifying to happen or to come to pass. Thus, it is a place where events occur. From the city of Sihon, a flame went forth. 
It is a parallel statement to the previous clause. This is why we call these things mashals or proverbs, is because they're making comparisons all the way through them. As you read the book of Proverbs, you'll see that one thing compares another again and again and again. A flame is shaped like a blade or the head of a spear, and so it is poetically speaking of the blade of war going forth to consume, just as fire consumes. In this case, verse 28 continues, it consumed Ar of Moab. Akelah Ar Moab. It devoured Ar of Moab. Deuteronomy 2 verse 29 shows that the city of Ar was inhabited by Moab. Therefore, it could be that the words are comparable to saying, we stomped on them all the way to Tokyo. The city itself wasn't taken, but the land right up to it was, and the people were crushed all along the way. Verse 28 continues, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Ba'ale ba'mot Arnon. The lords of the high places of Arnon. This is parallel to the preceding clause. The lords of the heights of the Arnon is probably referring to the priests and the people who worshipped their god in the high places. In verses 19 and 20, the location Bamot was mentioned. It is the people of this area that were consumed by the warfire of Sihon. 1b, poem part 2. This is the words of Israel. Now, it doesn't sound like Israel at this point, but they are setting up the stage for their final part. So this is the words of Israel. Verse 29, Woe to you, Moab. Oy lecha, Moab. Woe to you, Moab. Here, the familiar word oy is introduced into Scripture. It signifies woe. Today, we hear Jews proclaim oy ve. This is something like woe is me. In this case, it is woe to you, Moab. This is because, verse 29 going on, you have perished, O people of Chemosh, abata am Chemosh. You are annihilated, people of Chemosh. The people of Sihon are taunting the Moabites by taunting their god, Chemosh. The meaning of Chemosh can't really be definitively defined, but it seems to come from an unused root word meaning to subdue, and thus it means something like vanquisher. The taunt then is all the more striking when it says that the people of their god, powerful or vanquisher, are powerless to ward off annihilation. And more taunts towards Chemosh are forthcoming. Verse 29 continues, he has given his sons as fugitives. Natan Banav Pelatim, given sons, fugitives. Those sons of Moab who trusted the failing god Chemosh that weren't destroyed were taken from their people and given as fugitives to Sihon. Verse 29 going on, and his daughters into captivity, Ubenotav Bashevit, and daughters into exile. The daughters of Chemosh have been separated from their people. Because of his inability to protect them, they were given away. Verse 29 continues to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Lemelech Emori Sihon, to king of the Amorites, Sihon. Sihon and his people had defeated Moab, the people of Chemosh. They were victorious in battle, and what belonged to Moab became the property of Sihon. However, something new has been added to the song of war, making it a proverbial song. 1C, poem part 3, the victory of Israel. Verse 30, but we have shot at them. Vaniram, and shot. Everything else is just inserted, and we have shot at them. In contrast to the great power of Sihon over Moab, the greater power of Israel over Sihon is seen. Thus, because the God of Moab gave up to the power of the Amorites, so the God of the Amorites could not withstand 
the power of Jehovah. Verse 30 continues, Heshbon is perished as far as Dibon. Abad Heshbon ad Dibon. Has perished Heshbon as far as Dibon. Just as Heshbon has been taken from Moab, now those who took it have been destroyed, even as far as a place called Dibon. The name probably comes from the word dov, meaning to pine away, and thus Dibon would be pining. Verse 30 going on, then we laid waste as far as Nophah, vanashim ad Nophah, and made desolate to Nophah. Again, another taunt is raised concerning the greatness of the victory. The name Nophah comes from a word meaning to breathe or to blow. It is what the Lord did to Adam on the day he created him. He breathed Nophah into his nostrils the breath of life. It is also what Ezekiel says will again happen to Israel in the valley of dry bones when the breath is breathed again into the slain. Therefore, the name probably means windy place. An entire section of the land was destroyed from Heshbon to Nophah by the onslaught of Israel. And it is Nophah, verse 30 going on, which reaches to Medebah. Asher ad Medebah, which extends to Medebah. This would be the reading according to the text itself. But there is a special mark above the last letter of the word translated as which. If that letter does not belong, as the mark calls it into question, then the text would also match what it says in the Greek translation of this passage. And so instead of saying which reaches to Medibah, it would say with fire unto Medibah. The words are very similar, asher, which, and then you have esh, which means fire. So it's very similar. There could be an inserted word by accident. That's why they put that dot above it. That would then form a proper parallel to the previous clause, which says we laid waste as far as Nophah with fire unto Medibah. It would also then correspond to the flame and the fire mentioned in verse 28. This is probably the correct reading. Either way, Medibah means something like waters of rest. In all, the poem calls out the superiority of Israel over the Amorites and thus the greatness of Jehovah over the gods of both the Amorites and the Moabites. And because of this, verse 31, thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. This is stated, like was said earlier, to show Israel's right to dwell in this area. Any future claim on the land by the children of Lot would be invalid because Israel had defeated those who had defeated Moab. It was, at the time of Israel's battle, the land of the Amorites. Verse 32, then Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. The next area of conquest is a place called Yatzer, or Jazer. This means something like helpful, or he shall help. It was an area of the Amorites which was subsequently defeated and driven out. Jazer was a main mother city, and it had its own daughter villages. This verse includes a new word in the Bible, lakad. It signifies to capture or to seize. It will become common as a word in the Bible from this point on, both for and unfortunately against Israel. After this, it says, verse 33, and they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. From Jazer, a turn is made, and Israel ascended on the way to the Bashan. There's an article in front of Bashan. The name signifies something like place of fertile soil. Another foe is now seen, verse 33 going on. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. Og is said to be king of the Bashan. 
His name comes from, surprisingly, Uga, which is a round baked cake. That comes from Ug to bake. Here it says that he led his entire force out to meet Israel at Edrei. Edrei means something like mighty. Despite the name implying the great force which has arisen against them, the Lord is more powerful and has good news for his people. Verse 34, then the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. We will find out later that Og was one of the giants, a man of great stature like Goliath. That, along with the large accompanying army, would have made them appear as a formidable foe. But, as Hezekiah noted many, many years later against his own great foe, with Og was an arm of flesh, but with Israel is the Lord their God, to help them and to fight their battles. There was no need to fear such an impotent foe. Verse 35, so they defeated him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left him. This requires an explanation which is found in the book of Deuteronomy. In both the battle against Sihon and of that against Og, every person was haram, or devoted to destruction, as it says in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left nothing remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. And then again in Deuteronomy 3, and we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. What may seem overly brutal to our sensibilities today is irrelevant to what the Lord determines. He creates and he can dispose with his creation in whatever way he finds appropriate. Verse 35 finishes with, and they took possession of his land. Again, this is a final statement which reveals Israel's right to the land which they had acquired. Both Sihon and Og came against Israel. They were defeated by Israel, and Israel has the right to the land because of their victory. It is the standard procedure revealed throughout history concerning victory in such a battle. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. Worthy is the lamb, so we say again, glorious is the lamb and we are his kingdom. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb, so we say again, let the song of the lamb clothe you like dressing. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. All honor is to be given to him now and for always. Worthy is the lamb, and so we say again, we shall sing of the glory of the lamb for eternal days. Our second thought today is a look ahead in redemptive history. This is the last recorded event of the wilderness wanderings just after all of the disobedient generation are dead and just before the narrative dramatically changes, leading into an entirely different theme. Here, despite Israel as having been seen to receive the Spirit in the last sermon, there are two foes which must still be defeated. In the end times, there are two foes which need to be defeated, the Antichrist and the false prophet. How do you take an account of the future, where two foes are destroyed at the same time, and give details of them so that it is understood that each foe is who is being pictured? You give two separate stories in the same narrative. Here we see Israel first tries to appease Sihon, asking to simply pass through his territory. 
Sihon means warrior. He anticipates the Antichrist. He comes out to Jahaz to war against Israel. That means trodden down. It is what happens to Jerusalem in the end times where it says in Revelation 16, verse 2, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Israel defeated Sihon and, as it says, took possession of the land. The word used speaks of inheritance. What belonged to the Antichrist and his master, the devil, is regained for Israel. At that time, it says that they have inherited the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Arnon comes from the word Ranan, which signifies to give a jubilant, ringing cry and thus rejoicing. The Yabok or Jabbok means pouring out. There was a pouring out of God's favor, his love, grace, mercy, and the like, even the Holy Spirit on Israel. But there is also a pouring out of God's wrath on the Antichrist. In this, Heshbon or Heshbon is highlighted. It comes from Hashav. It is a word which signifies to consider, calculate, or devise. Therefore, it signifies an explanation of things or intelligence. It is the acquisition of Heshbon that the poetic offset was introduced. Sihon had taken it from the former king of Moab, but Israel took it from Sihon. The poem looks to the state of the world that will continue until Christ's final rule. Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 19. From the NIV translation, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. The wisdom and intelligence of God, meaning the gospel, represented by Heshbon, was unavailable to Israel. The spirit of Antichrist is that which denies the Son, something which they have done all along. Okay, that's 1 John 4 verse 3. Sihon's defeat of Heshbon looked to Antichrist's defeat over Israel. The sons were fugitives and the daughters were captives to Sihon. But in Israel's calling out to Christ came the return of Christ and the destruction of Antichrist. The supposed wisdom of the wise was destroyed. That is why the land is said to be laid waste, as it says, as far as Debon, as far as Nofa, which reaches to Medeba. Debon means pining. Nofa signifies windy place. Medeba means waters of rest. The intelligence of this world is gone, and with everything that stands against the knowledge of the breath of life, which reaches to the waters of rest. This will be fully realized when the Antichrist is defeated. After this, Moses sent to spy out Jezer. It signifies he shall help. It looks to the Lord as their helper, as Israel no longer trusts himself. The second foe to be defeated is the false prophet, represented by Og. The account says that they went by the way of Habashan, or the Bashan, a place of fertile soil. Og is said to be king of the Bashan. His name, as I said, comes from Uga, which is a round baked cake. That comes from Ug, meaning to bake. The picture we see is one set in opposition to Israel and who is to be destroyed. The Uga, or baked cake, is seen seven times in the Bible. It is that which nourishes and that which sustains life. Thus, Ug, who is king over the fertile place of soil, pictures the false prophet who denies the people of God the truth and nourishment of the word. The battle of Israel against him was at Edrei, which signifies mighty. Despite the mighty place chosen for this final battle, it is the Lord through Israel who defeats Og. As the passage finishes, it says that they were defeated until there were no survivors left. Both Sihon and Og were devoted to destruction along with all of their people. 
that is well represented by the destruction of the armies gathered together against the Lord, who has come back to defend Israel in Revelation chapter 19. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. The history of Israel from their exile, due to rejecting Christ, all the way through until the time just prior to the millennial kingdom found in Revelation chapter 20, has been beautifully represented in type and in picture since Numbers chapter 14. The symbolism has been perfectly clear. As asked earlier, how does one present an account of history before it happens so that the things will be understood when they come about, but without simply giving all of the details in clear text? It is done through typology. The Lord uses real events of history, recording those things which will match later events so that the overall picture becomes evident. The majority of the typology has already been seen in the coming of Christ and in the completion of the writing of the New Testament. But some of the things revealed in the new are yet to come about. Things like the rapture, Israel's coming to Christ, the second coming of Christ in the millennium. By knowing what the Bible clearly reveals about the future, we can then look for and identify the typology that was given to foreshadow it. This gives us a double assurance that what is prophesied to yet come about is all the more certain. If only Israel could look at the past, compare it with themselves, compare it with their current state and what lies ahead, they would avoid many, many troubles in the days ahead. We should pray for them and hope that they will open their eyes to see what the Lord is shouting out to them from his word. And the same is true with us. The things we are looking at aren't novel stories, but real examples of God's care over redemptive history. In the word of God, we have a sure word. And that word above all tells us of Jesus. It reveals his love for the world and his love for Israel, despite their current rejection of him. He who is ever faithful will never forget his promises. And I've said a million times, maybe a billion times, the unfaithfulness of God's people does not negate God's faithfulness. And that is something that we need to absolutely hold fast to, because when the Bible says that we are saved, if we turn unfaithful, then that would mean that God would unsave us. And that would show a God who made a mistake in the first place, a God that is waffling, a God that might even be considered vindictive. But he's not. Israel rejected him. They've rejected him since the moment they became a nation under his control at Mount Sinai. We've seen that a million times already, and we're, we're only a couple books into the Old Testament. We're going to see it all the way through their history. And then they nailed Christ to the cross, along with the people of the world, the difference is that they didn't turn from that. And so Christ went to the nations. But God has remained faithful to Israel to preserve them as a people, just as he said he would. And that is to show us that he will be faithful to us despite our own unfaithfulness, if we will come to him in faith, if we will do that. Let's trust in this. Let's be confident of it as we continue our walk down life's path. Let us be grounded in Christ, and in this we will never be led astray from his goodness. This is what I would ask you today, to keep in the word, to stay close to him. Because in the book of 1 Peter, 
chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that there are people that are saved that have actually forgotten that they were cleansed from their past sins. They've forgotten it, but the Lord hasn't. He speaks of them just as saved as the day that they were saved by Christ. I'm going to read it to you because I saw all these eyebrows go up. You think I'm making that up? Here's what it says here. I think I said 1 Peter. It's 2 Peter 1, 9. I think I said 1 Peter 2, 9. Anyway, 2 Peter 1, verse 9 says, I'll go to verse 8. For if these things are yours, meaning you're doing what Peter recommended in verses 1 through 7, if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. He forgot. The Lord didn't. He is faithful when we are unfaithful. Be assured of this. Be assured of the doctrine of eternal salvation. I don't care what verse you send to me. If you want to, send it. And I'll be happy to send you the correct answer to that. There is no contradiction in God's word. When he says that he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit and it is a guarantee, then he has sealed us with this Holy Spirit and it is a guarantee. Thank you. But that's only going to happen if you first receive Jesus Christ. And so if you've never received Jesus Christ, I would ask that you would do it today. You've sinned. You know you have. I don't need to ask you a bunch of embarrassing questions, but I'll ask one. Have you ever told a lie? Yes, you have. That one sin has separated you from your creator. One sin. That's all it takes because in the book of James it says if you err in one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. It's done. Doesn't matter if you killed somebody. Doesn't matter if you lied. It's done. You've broken the law. And you need a savior to take care of that problem because you can't undo what you've done. Guess what, folks? We're in time. We'll say that this is time. It's going this way. Your sin is back here. There's no going back and undoing it. You're going to come to your end of this life, and if you haven't been saved by the blood of Christ for that one sin or those many, many sins, you will be condemned because God cannot accept you. Please do it today. Our closing verse comes from Ecclesiastes 1. It's verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. He's given us types typology so that when these things come about we'll know that the Lord has spoken Then we've seen I mean how many since chapter 14 that have been fulfilled literally and exactingly in Israel literally and exactingly I mean we could probably count hundreds and hundreds of things that the Lord showed in those verses that have come about in Israel do we think that this isn't going to come about that they're not going to defeat the foes that come against them that Israel will not be the head of the nations Absolutely not. It's going to happen. It will come about. Next week is Numbers 22, 1 through 21. What is the story of Balaam about? Stay tuned and we shall see. It's entitled, Curse This People for Me. That'll be our 43rd number sermon. Now, I will tell you this. I still don't know. Okay, I've done all of the Balaam sermons. They're all done. I'm up to chapter 26 something now. But... You'll get good sermons, even if I can't give you the typology. And I told Jim this, I am not going to make up typology if I'm not certain that it is what the Lord is trying to show us. But he's showing us something in these Blom sermons. This guy comes down on a donkey and it speaks to him and all of the things that happen. Great sermons, regardless of whether I give you the actual pictures that they're making. Okay, but you'll get all of the information. It'll all be in your head when we're done, okay? I'd like to tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert wandering aimlessly. 
but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is called Two Foes to Be Destroyed. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. Please understand. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went, as the record does tell, out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, yes, on that side, as far as the people of Ammon from the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all of its villages having sunny days and sleepy nights. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab. So it was this way. Then he had taken all of his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be rebuilt. Let the city of Sihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab. You have perished, O people of Kamosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to Sihon, king of the Amorites but we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon. Then we laid waste as far as Nophah, which reaches to Medibah. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Moses sent to spy out Jazer, probably at early dawn, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there, and they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, so we see he and all his people to battle at Edrei. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, so we understand. So they defeated him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. Lord God, we are even now in the wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily, it apply. Then we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you! To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. <laughs> Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful story, this ongoing story, not just what we saw today, but the entire story of redemptive history laid out before us to show us the marvels and the majesty of what you have done by your own strong arm and by your own right hand. Thank you for stepping out of the eternal realm in the person of Jesus and giving us a sure hope that we can be saved and that we are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we certainly pray for Israel who has for so very long trusted in themselves and failed to come to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May many more eyes be opened before the day comes when there's no more chance for them to do so. We pray this, that you will be glorified in and among them and that you will be the praise of the earth, not just among them, but throughout all of the nations of the world for your faithfulness to Israel. Thank you, Lord God. We pray this 
that you will be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.